the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. And I should say we had others with us today. We celebrated the 10th birthday of Emma today. Want to wish her the happiest of birthdays. She's a remarkable young woman. Uh, and she uh, had a tour of the station today on her 10th birthday. It was a real pleasure uh, to host her. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Edmund Heiselmeyer. He's a senior research fellow in healthcare policy at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. He's an expert uh, at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about some of the key takeaways from the uh, Congressional Budget Office score of the Republican health care bill. I have to admit, it's a bit head scratching, and even after hearing some key uh, issues, it might not be altogether clear. So we're going to have to spend some time over the, uh, the next several weeks trying to clarify different aspects of it. But this at least is an overview. We're also going to talk with Lynn Hartke. She's the author of Under a Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty and Faith in the Hardest Places. She lives in the desert. She loves the desert, but she has walked through it as a breast cancer survivor and walking her parents through um, cancer diagnoses uh, that they uh, shared at the same time. We'll talk with her about her view of the desert, having walked through it under those circumstances. And in the five o'clock hour, we're going to reprise our effort to uh, provide food for a year and water for life for children in Haiti and Guatemala. We were so close to our goal, but not quite there. So we're hoping uh, several others of you will generously give to this effort and you can learn more about it if you weren't privy to it uh, yesterday on the program. So that is our lineup today. First, a little, a little bit of the uh, the day's news. Officials in Washington are scrambling to account for the leaked identity of the the British uh, suicide bomber, the deadliest suicide bombing in a decade after British authorities accused the United States of revealing the sensitive information, the latest instance of unauthorized disclosures undermining American credibility around the world. Now, it's not clear if this was through official channels or through the media, but Washington's growing culture of leaks has come under intense scrutiny this month. Among the controversies were accusations that President Trump inappropriately disclosed classified information to Russian officials within the White House and the release from prison of former Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning, who served four years for helping WikiLeaks produce one of the largest leaks of classified information in history. Some officials scratched their heads at the surreal um, uh, aspects of the leak culture. The Russia White House leaks reportedly went from the president to the nation's foremost enemy. Manning received cross-sex hormone therapy and female undergarments from the army while in prison. And WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will soon start his sixth year living inside the European embassy, or rather the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But consequences can be deadly. The British Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, she discussed these while addressing the suspected U.S. leak that jeopardized the police investigation into Monday's bombing at a Manchester pop concert that killed some 22 and wounded 119. Fueled by a leak, U.S. broadcasters CBS and NBC said that uh, the, uh, the terrorists, uh, the suspected killer, hours before the Manchester police did, by name identifying him, the TV network 
network cited U.S. sources. The British police have been very clear that they want to control the flow of information in order to protect operational integrity, the element of surprise. So it is irritating if it gets released from other sources. Uh, She said, speaking to the BBC on Wednesday, I have been very clear with our friends that should not happen again. And in fact, they decided that they were not going to share intelligence with the United States as a consequence of this leak. We learned just a short while ago, however, they have decided they will resume sharing intelligence with the U.S., even though this inexplicable leak that was addressed by the uh, president uh, condemning it uh, has not yet been thoroughly identified. The president said that deeply uh, troubling leaks to U.S. media about Manchester suicide bombing would be investigated after irate British police stopped sharing information with U.S. agencies. So we'll see what happens of that investigation and what place in line it takes, what place in the queue, if you will, uh, it takes in the long line of investigations that are already ongoing. Well, a Virginia-based federal appeals court blocked the president's, uh, the administration's controversial travel ban, becoming the second circuit court to uphold lower court rulings against the policy, based largely on comments made during the presidential campaign. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond issued the ruling today following arguments on May the 8th. The ruling means the Trump administration still cannot enforce its travel ban, which affects six Muslim-majority countries, excluding some 44 others. But they include Iran, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya and Sudan. Many of those countries don't even have an embassy where those seeking to enter the United States can be vetted. We remain unconvinced the ban has more to do with the national security than it does the effectuating the president's promised Muslim ban, the court said. The ruling was issued by the full or en banc uh, banc court of 10 to 3 ruling with two absent abstentions, rather. Congress granted the president uh, broad power to deny entry to aliens, but that power is not absolute. It cannot go unchecked when, as here, the president wheels it through an executive edict that stands to cause irreparable harm to individuals across the nation. The chief judge of the circuit, Roger Gregory, wrote, Judge Paul Niemeyer sharply dissented from the decision, saying it will make the U.S. more dangerous. Regrettably, at the end of the day, the real losers in this case are the millions of individual Americans who who Security is threatened on a daily basis by those who seek to do us harm. That was a quote from Judge Dennis Shedd in a separate dissent. Well, the president issued his first executive order creating the travel ban on the 27th of January. On March the 6th, he issued a revised travel ban uh, striking Iraq and excluding existing visas and greed cardholders. Another federal appeals court is considering a similar appeal of a Hawaii-based judge, uh, judges ruling blocking the visa ban. The San Francisco-based Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments in that case on May the 15th. And it's uh, not difficult to guess the outcome of that deliberation. We're going to talk more about this in just a few moments, but the Congressional Budget Office, also known as the CBO, has claimed millions will lose health insurance with the GOP plan. Blue Cross, in the meantime, is pulled out of Obamacare in Kansas and in Missouri, which is further evidence of the crumbling system that currently exists. Whether or not it will be repealed, replaced, altered remains to be seen. From the Wall Street Journal, they write that this is real news in real markets that affect people's lives. So naturally, the speculative CBO report became the day's major story. The story then looks at the glaring CBO flaws. We'll talk a, a bit about that with uh, Mr. Heiselmeyer when he joins me in our next segment. And finally, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, he says that there's still no path to 50 votes on the health care bill that was sent from the House to the Senate uh, at the moment anyway, that uh, does not have much promise. And we're hearing some Republicans announce that they will start from the beginning 
and uh, create their own health care bill to repeal and replace Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as it's more officially known. Meanwhile, Obamacare introduced new regulations into the health care marketplace. It contributed to premiums doubling after the legislation took full effect back in 2014. According to a report, the Department of Health and Human Services released uh, Tuesday evening. Health and Human Services compared premiums in the exchanges marketplace in 2013, one year before Obamacare regulations took full effect, to premiums in the exchange marketplace in 2017. The report found that average monthly premiums increased from 224 Four dollars in 2013 to 476 dollars in 2017. That constitutes a 105 percent increase in only four years. It is currently, uh, as it stands, unsustainable. Whether or not a, um, a replacement, again, an alteration or a repeal uh, is uh, forthcoming, uh, remains to be seen, and we'll continue to follow that story. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is our time. Up next, we'll talk with Ed. Heiselmeyer, he's a senior research fellow in health policy studies. We're going to talk about some of the key takeaways from the Congressional Budget Office score of the Republican health care bill that they say will repeal and replace Obamacare. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, updated their, their score of the House-passed American Health Care Act this week prior to its being sent over to the Senate. And they projected that if passed into law, the, uh, the American Health Care Act would reduce the number of uninsured, or rather insured, by $23 million, but would decrease the deficit by $119 billion, while also reducing federal outlays by $1.1 trillion and federal revenue by $992 billion. I don't know if your head is uh, spinning at this point, trying to make sense of it all. Well, while the score is roughly similar to the score from the original version of the American Health Care Act uh, released in March of this year, several modifications to the law occurred since then and weren't reflected in the earlier estimates. Well, joining us to help break down the score and what it means for health care efforts from this point moving forward, Ed Heiselmeyer, he joins us. He's a senior research fellow in health policy studies, the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity, and an expert in health care at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I guess my first question is how credible the CBO's rating uh, is. Are they overly optimistic in their assumptions related to the Affordable Care Act? Are their numbers reliable? Do they have a track record that we can look to to say, yeah, this gives us a, a clear understanding of what might happen should this legislation pass? Well, I mean, here's the issue. This is the umpire or the referee. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that guarantees that the umpire or the referee gets it right, is there? No. But but even if they get it wrong, it's their call that counts, not yours. Yeah. So how important... And that's the situation. So, you know, whether... I, I mean, the answer to your... The, the broader answer to your question is, yeah, they've overestimated the enrollment effect. So when we say that in the future there'll be 23 million more uninsured people, well, that's only because they assume that they're... Implausibly, that if you did nothing, there would be 8 million fewer uninsured people. <laughs> You know, which which it's just their, their track record of predicting enrollment is not very good. But at the end of the day, they really what matters, particularly when it comes to the dollars. So, how important is it in this process to members of Congress now, the Senate, who uh, some are suggesting are, are going to start with a blank sheet of paper and work their way uh, from there in determining their course in addressing uh, the Affordable Care Act or the American Health Care Act? Well, basically. 
really uh, what CBO matters is on the dollar amount. I mean, there'll be a lot of headlines about the other effects. But remember that the CBO is the umpire when it comes to legislation relating to the federal budget. And this is a federal budget process. So whatever CBO's opinions of things like coverage effects or the effects on uh, states or the effects on private entities like employers and insurers, that's a nice opinion. But what, what really only matters in this process is the score that CBO says for the budget aspects, taxes and spending. And we know roughly what that is. We know that roughly in the 10-year budget window, the, if you leave the Affordable Care Act alone, it'll take in about a uh, trillion dollars in revenues and spend one and a quarter trillion dollars in federal expenditure. So it'll be in deficit by about $250 billion over uh, 10 years. So if you repeal that whole thing, then you would save the, or you would reduce the federal deficit by about $250 billion. So we know that that's basically the parameter. Uh, there's not a lot of dispute about that. And then what comes in is, well, if we don't change 100% of it, but if we change this piece here, that piece there, what does it get you down to? So instead of reducing the deficit by uh, $250 billion, CPO said that the House bill, as they passed it, would reduce the deficit by $119 billion. That's because some of that extra spending was reprogrammed under the House bill. There are some assumptions that have to be made by the uh, Congressional Budget Office of the performance, the expected performance and enrollment of the Affordable Care Act. And again, are those assumptions uh, relatively conservative uh, that can be relied upon to give us at least some idea of how the Affordable Care Act would perform uh, if it were left alone, as opposed to the kinds of changes that have been proposed? No, I mean, the, 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 in terms of the track record of what we've seen in implementation versus what the Congressional Budget Office originally projected, basically we've seen an implementation that they were wrong on two things. One, when a state expanded Medicaid, the enrollment grew much quicker. So what that means is... CBO had originally expected that if a state expanded Medicaid, people would just sort of trickle into the program over a few years. In fact, you get 90% of the sign-ups of the new people in the first year or so. Uh, And that's what the Office of the Actuary Agent just predicted. Now, that effect is largely behind us because the states that have expanded have done it. So that's not going to change much going forward. The other thing CBO has been wrong about is how many people would sign up for subsidized coverage on the exchange. That is where it is going to make a difference. So if fewer people sign up than CBO predicts, which I believe will be the case, that will mean that the good news is there won't be as many uninsured people as CBO predicts. But getting rid of Obamacare doesn't save you as much money because there aren't as much money, there aren't as many people claiming government subsidies. One of your colleagues writes that the CBO has still done nothing to address the inherent uncertainty involved in scoring large, complex pieces of health legislation by hiding large considerations behind opaque methodologies. It also has still failed to walk back its overly optimistic views of the power of the individual mandate or the performance of Obamacare moving forward. Uh, For the average Joe who's looking at uh, this analysis, what should we take away from it in our understanding of the the direction at least the House has taken and uh, what's in our best interest, generally speaking? 
Yeah, the one big point is the last one my colleague made. Uh, I mean, the other one is is he's basically criticizing them unfairly, I think, for not being as transparent about how they come to these conclusions so that they could be better evaluated, critiqued by, you know, their peers uh, in our organization or other organizations, both liberals and conservatives who do economic modeling. Uh, the other, the other uh, point, though, is, and this is one that the former director of CBO, Doug Elmendorf, who was the director at the time that the ACA was passed in 2010, he recently admitted publicly, and I think it was Harvard or MIT forum, that yes, the CBO had overestimated the effect of the mandate. And what that means is that essentially it comes down to, are there a group of people out there who are basically uh, younger, healthier, and probably single, because a lot of people, even if they're healthy, will buy coverage to cover their dependents. And they're basically young, healthy, single, don't feel they need the coverage, don't like the coverage, and don't want to pay the prices, but are doing so anyway because the government's telling them to do it, finding them if they don't. CBO seems to think there are a lot of them. Nobody else outside, other than some insurance actuaries, think that's true. The problem for you and me is the reality, we may actually have a better grasp of reality, but they're the ones that are calling the shots, CBO and the insurance actuaries that are pricing the premiums. Well, the uh, the Senate is taking this up, and in fact, this was uh, designed to... Um help the Senate better understand what has been proposed by the House. What might we expect in the short term? And do you expect this year we're going to see some uh, something come out of the Senate? Yeah, the Senate has, uh, there's a sort of uh, threshold decisions they have to make. Do they keep some of the basic structure that the House passed or not? And uh, with regards to, say, like the Medicaid reforms, the tax credits, et cetera. If the answer to that is yes, they keep the, the basic structural elements, then there's a lot in this that the CBO report can help guide them in cleaning up, tweaking, redoing the basic structure. Okay, so for example, if they keep the basic structure of age-adjusted tax credits to match the fact that as people get older, adults get older, their health expenses go up and their insurance premiums go up. So have the tax credits go up, then, yeah, you can redesign the the brackets, if you will, to make it match better than the House did. But you first have to answer that question, are we going to keep that basic structure? Same thing is true with the reforms to Medicaid. So I think that's the first thing we'll look for in the Senate, is to see if they keep some of these basic structures. If they don't, then then the alternative is they're going to come up with a completely different design with a different set of issues. So if they keep the basic structure, this will help as a guide to how to fix and repair. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm keeping the basic footprint and walls and whatnot of the house, you know, the framing. I'm just, re- you know, putting the bathroom in a different place. I'm redoing the ceiling here. I'm redoing this. Well, Edmund Heiselmeyer, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, I hope that clarifies. Yeah. Instead of obfuscate. <laughs> it does help. Thank you so much. Again, okay, uh, Mr. Heiselmeyer is a senior research fellow in health policy studies at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity, and an, ex- an expert, rather, in health care. Up next, we're going to talk with author Lynn Hartke. She's a breast cancer survivor. Her book is titled Under the Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty, and Faith in the Hard Places. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We are back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the setting of the Sonoran Desert, my next guest, Lynn Hartke, was forced to ask herself the hard questions that come with a cancer diagnosis. Some of you know precisely what that's like. Once strong and confident, she was now watched defenselessly as a thief came suddenly in the night to take it all, to take her hair, the contents of her stomach, her family, and her life. And as her days became blurred with appointments and treatments and surgeries, she wrestled with a tangle of emotions and a shaken faith. And right when she felt like she had hit rock bottom, cancer, that thief, came to not only take her life, but the lives of her parents. Well, with raw and breathtaking detail, she invites readers into the depths of emotion and healing of the desert. Along the journey, fellow sojourners will come to understand that even if life's hardest places, even there, they're not alone in their fear, they're not foolish to hope, and they are never forgotten by the God that has loved them before the beginning of time. Well, Lynn Hartke is a breast cancer survivor who celebrates the difficult and the beautiful with her husband, Kevin, in Chandler, Arizona, where they have pastored a church for over 30 years. She's a blogger. She's a speaker, a volunteer at several uh, cancer organizations, and she currently is training to hike from the south rim of the Grand Canyon to the north rim, a distance of 23 miles in a single day because cancer taught her to grab onto life with both hands. She joins us today to talk about her book, Under the Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty and Faith in the Hardest Places. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello? Let me just one moment. I think I've um, pulled up a wrong line. Let me get rid of that one. And there you are. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Was this a difficult book to write? It's highly personal, but it's it's also um, very soothing, I think, for the reader uh, who sees desert as only a harsh place where things go to die. Yes, that is very much true. And I wanted to explore the thought, you know, what would it be like to write a book where the desert is beautiful, although a very difficult beauty? Because I didn't appreciate the beauty of the desert when I first moved here three decades ago. And I thought it was a perfect uh, metaphor for going to a cancer story because there's beauty there, too, but it is a difficult beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, difficult beauty. You write that having cancer redefined life for you. Watching your mom endure pain from her cancer made you rethink your view of strength. Sitting next to your dad as he faced eternity without fear gave you new thoughts about uh, about courage. And you go on about meeting people wearing headscarves and displaying their scars and so on. This journey into the desert, this diagnosis of cancer and all the attendant uh, things that go with that taught you a great deal. I mentioned that you are a pastor's wife. You've been in ministry for three decades. Yes. Um, yes. And many might think, well, you're you're a different sort of person and a diagnosis of cancer and all the things that follow for you would be different from the person who is a layman and has no... Um, no claim to leadership or a special relationship with God. What do you say to those who might think, well, your experience is different from mine? I think when anyone hears the words, you have cancer, you're forced to face your own mortality. And what is it you really do believe about God and eternity and heaven? And um, I think it puts us all on pretty much the same level when we hear those that diagnosis. Mm. At least I found it true for myself. You uh, and I know I go ahead. And I watched my parents as well struggle with that and coming to grips with it. My dad was very comfortable about talking about eternity when he was first diagnosed, and people would ask him, you know, how are you doing with cancer? He would say, I am going to live until I die, and then my real life 
will begin. Mm. And um, But I saw my mom, you know, she wanted to just fight cancer to the end. That was more her way of dealing with her sickness because she said, I think life is beautiful here and I have more life I want to live. And so she she fought hard in her cancer journey. How would you describe your, your fight, your facing off with cancer? Um, I tended to deal with it like um, it was going to be a temporary situation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kick cancer in the teeth and then get on with my life. And uh, my cancer was caught very early in a routine mammogram. And so someone some would say, well, you got off easy. You had an easy cancer. But I learned pretty quick you don't do a comparison in the uh, with cancer, and we each are forced to ask hard questions and look at our lives and where we're heading. Now, tell us about your diagnosis and how your family responded to the fact that you were going to have to confront cancer without knowing at that time what the outcome ultimately would be. Yes. Um, I went in for a routine mammogram, and they found something that um, looked different from the one I'd had a couple years before. And so they wanted me to come in for a biopsy, which I did. And then you play the waiting game, you know, waiting for the test to come back. And my doctor actually called me on the phone and told me that I had cancer. And um, I was, you know, weeding in the backyard. And interestingly enough, my parents were with me that day, even though they lived in Minnesota. And I remember mom starting to cry and dad putting his hand on his shoulder, on my shoulder. And I knew the one thing I had to do was call my husband. And I thought, how am I going to find the words to tell him that I have the disease that killed both his parents? And having to call him and I actually lost all my words. I All I could do was cry. I felt that cancer at that moment had taken my words. And then having to tell the kids and how difficult that was because in their minds, they'd already lost two grandparents and now their mom had cancer. It had to have been very difficult to have hope at that moment, given the history that they uh, had had been made aware of. You experienced the victory of remission. Um, and just as you were rejoicing in that, um, you had to walk through the desert with your your father and your mother. It's very unusual for spouses to uh, fight cancer, uh, to have a cancer diagnosis at the same time. How did that impact your um, your understanding of this uh, this thing that you all had to confront and who you are and who they were in God? I discovered that it's one thing to trust your own life to the hands of God, but it's a completely different conversation to trust those that you love in the hands of God. And I personally found it more difficult to watch my parents in their struggle with cancer than when I was going through it myself. I don't know if that's similar to everyone, but I know in talking with other people, it uh, seems to be true that it's harder to watch people you love Mm -hmm. uh, deal with cancer. Now, you write about learning uh, primarily about your mother, things that you did not know about your parents. Talk a little bit about how that journey deepened your understanding of them and your relationship. Um, The one thing I learned from my mom with her cancer story was the importance of just being gracious and kind. Uh, She would welcome doctors into an exam room and almost like a queen holding court. (laughs) Uh, She had been this energizer buddy all her life, but cancer gradually took that away from her, but she never lost her kindness. And I remember uh, being in an appointment one time with her and she went back for something and the receptionist in their hometown in Albert Lee, Minnesota, came around the desk 
to talk to my sister and myself, and she said, you know, I have been very angry with God, but I'm watching your mom deal with not only her own cancer, but the cancer of her husband, and dealing with it with such grace that I think I need to relook at my own anger issues. Mm. And that's the first time I thought, you know what, kindness can lead people to look again at God, and my mom demonstrated that with her cancer journey. Mm. One of the things that we do first when we have an unpleasant diagnosis or a circumstance that is uh, out of our control but is devastating to us is that we begin to ask questions. And I think the first one that always comes to mind is why and then why me? Where did you begin and how did you respond to that question and the questions that were perhaps better uh, that followed? I did find myself um, asking kind of like the Israelites, you know, out in the desert, why did you bring us out to the desert to die? And Mm. um, not only me, but my parents. And to be honest, I can't say I ever got a good answer to the why question. But the question that I felt uh, God was very faithful to answer for me was who he was in that hard place. And part of the book is just talking about where God met us in this difficult place, whether it was through strangers or through nurses, or uh, the words from friends and family, God pursued us in the hardest place. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to explore that a bit more. Who is God in these difficult places, particularly when we're talking about that desert place where it's difficult uh, to imagine anything uh, thriving? But we'll continue the conversation in a moment. Again, we're talking with Lynn Hartke. She's the author of Under a Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, beauty, and faith in the hardest places. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Lynn Hartke. She is a breast cancer survivor who celebrates the difficult and the beautiful with her husband, Kevin, in Arizona, where they have a pastor to church for over 30 years. She also blogs regularly at lynnhartke.com. We were talking about the fact that the question of why is usually the first thing that we utter, whether it's aloud or just in our own hearts, but that the better question and the one that God seemed to respond to most in your circumstance was, who is God and um, where he met you in the midst of the the challenge, the desert that you were facing? Yes. Yeah, I definitely did find that that was a question that he did answer. I think of the story of Jesus being taken out into the desert after, you know, being baptized by John, and he was tempted in the desert place. And I think the questions uh, remain the same. I think we struggle with either God's compassion, does he really love me? Or we struggle with his power. Um, Does he have the power to take care of me? And um, I I found it was true that he is still all-powerful and he is still all-compassion. And he found me in that desert place of my cancer and both my parents. Now, again, when we think about the desert, we think of a desolate place. But you write about some of the vistas along the way, the beauty of the desert. And while we might uh, agree that... The physical desert, like the one you live uh, near in Arizona, can have its uh, its beautiful um, uh, vistas. When you're going through a desert, it's more difficult to recognize any beauty along the way. Describe what you mean by uh, there being places along the way that can be described in some ways as beautiful. 
Well, when we look at the desert, um, it's not like a Midwestern garden where it's these solid flowers and vineyards and azaleas and peonies everywhere. But it's like one plant and then another plant. And then you have, you know, a prickly pear cactus. It's beauty that's framed in barrenness. And I think that's a lot of the ways when you're going through a hard time, there's a lot, a lot of barren places that you can find beauty. And uh, for me, mainly it was to other people who loved God and um, to people that were kind to us. And I found God in uh, nature and through memorized Bible verses. Things that in the 2 a.m. watches of the night were portions of Scripture that I memorized. Mm -hmm. uh, Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go to the pit of hell, even there, your spirit will find me and lead me. You write about changing or rethinking your views on strength from watching uh, cancer uh, with your mom and uh, redefining and having new thoughts on courage by observing um, your your dad. How did you redefine these familiar things that we think we have some modicum of understanding of, but through desert experiences often find that there's so much more there, strength and courage, for example? Well, in regard to strength, I'd always considered myself a really strong woman mm-hmm. from, a, from a strong line of women. Uh, we can trace six generations of women who have loved Jesus in my family. But part of that strength, at least I had absorbed it thinking, well, I can carry the family by myself. And it was just a, a wrong view of strength that I had. And I'd interpreted um, even my mom's story, not not correctly. But that strength comes from realizing you need Jesus, you need other people, and you can't do it alone. And when you get everything stripped away, you find that your strength comes from people around you and from God. What about courage? Um, I found that, I don't remember who has said it, but sometimes courage is just putting your feet on the ground Mm -hmm. and facing another day. And uh, with cancer patients and with uh, my parents, that's how I saw courage. It's sometimes doing things even when you are afraid. And I never really thought of courage that way before. It's just getting up and facing another day to do it all over again. You describe meeting people wearing headscarves, proudly displaying their scars, and that caused you to reevaluate your view of beauty. Um, we have a very strong sense of what's beautiful and what's not in our culture. How did you uh, reevaluate or redefine beauty in light of your desert experience and uh, observing the desert experiences of others? I, I'm still very involved in the cancer community. And when all what we would normally think of as beautiful is stripped away, you really get to see inside people. And that is a uh, beautiful thing. I know I struggled with my own self-image after breast cancer and learning to grab that back and to say, no, uh, beauty is the fact that I'm alive and I am facing a new life. And it's not necessarily by body parts or um, how I defined beauty in the past. And my mom actually was very funny in her cancer uh, journey. She loved her lipstick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... (laughs) It's like, okay, yeah, bring the insurance card to the emergency room, but don't let me forget my lipstick. (laughs) And that became her symbol of grabbing back anything that cancer was trying to take from her. With a cancer diagnosis, one never knows the outcome until the outcome has arrived. Um, And you write about how to face eternity without fear. Your father certainly demonstrated that. What do you say to those who perhaps listening now have been given a frightening diagnosis, whether that's cancer or something else, and eternity seems much more 
um, a, a reality than perhaps it ever has before. How do you face that without fear? Um, I like the thought that we've all heard the Psalm 23 where we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I will fear no evil. And I think it ties in with another Psalm 91 where he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And cancer casts a huge shadow, but there's a bigger shadow, and that's the shadow of the Almighty God. And eternity is very real, and it's not that we're losing a fight to cancer, but we're gaining the love of God who has loved us from the beginning of time. Mm, and perhaps understanding a facet of that love that one doesn't experience under different circumstances. You had the uh, the gift, if you will, of, of remission. Is there anxiety over a possible cancer recurrence? And, and for those who uh, do have that fear, what would you recommend? Um, I still deal with fear. Um, I just actually have some testing this week, and it's like, really? Still dealing with it? Um, I'm just quicker to admit it now. Mm-hmm. Um, ask my husband to pray for me or uh, post on a cancer support group. Hey, I've got these tests. And people that have walked the road understand it. And uh, it's part of that new meaning of strength. Strength not saying you don't need help. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, I like that, to admit it now. I like that you described that there is a community of certainly a community of believers, but also others who are walking that same uh, desert path uh, who have had a cancer diagnosis that create a community of support as well. Emphasizing once again that walking that journey alone is not advisable. Yes, correct. Very much so. Now, what are some practical ways that you would recommend uh, people who um, uh, people who are listening and know others who are sick can come alongside and be helpful rather than become more of a burden or unhelpful? I know most of us, when we have a friend or family member that tells us that they have cancer, uh, we hear the story, it's all a mess and a jumble, and then suddenly our friend or family member runs out of words, and we're thinking, we've got to jump into the silence with great wisdom or with great help. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to tell people it's the small things that matter, and take that meal offer to pray, be available for text messages and things like that, and not just with the initial diagnosis, but months later when everyone else has forgotten uh, the person. And the scripture says, I was sick and you visited me. Just simple like that. We try to make it complicated, but we just want someone there showing compassion in our suffering to be a witness to our greatest struggle. And all of us can do that. Again, the book is titled Under a Desert Sky, Redefining Hope, Beauty, and Faith in the Hardest Places. It is beautifully written, and I think it will be an encouragement and inspiration to uh, to all of your readers. Lynn Hartke, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.